to two. Still a bit boomy. Do you mind just muting me a little bit more, please, Paul? Just so not quite so. I sound like I'm in a box. Help me. I'm in a box. Luke chapter two. Look at another part of the nativity. The word nativity just means the occasion of a person's birth. That's what the word actually means. And um, the nativity is the occasion of God's birth on this planet, in our space and time, as man. And the nativity, per se, is um, it's in, it's, it's a story that's loved by many people, including the non-religious. People love the nativity story, don't they? We, uh, we see nativity scenes being acted out in nurseries. All the three-year-olds all come in dressed as a goat and a donkey and a Iron Man and an angel, or whatever they are. We see it in schools as well, they're all acted out. People love a nativity play, love a nativity story. People love nativity scenes. They sit in our homes, in our living rooms, or wherever. They get little scenes made up from wool, or wood, or plasticine, or Lego, or whatever it might be. People like them. The nativity, as it is, only really causes outrage when people try and ban it, as they tried in France, that caused outrage when they tried to ban them from public places, ban the nativity scenes, because people loved it so much. People took offence that they wanted to have it taken away. Even This is people who don't even, aren't even followers of Christ, it's just the general public. And over here, do you know if you're aware that Greg's, the bakeries, caused a bit of a backlash last month when their marketing campaign did, if you saw the poster floating around where they had a nativity scene and baby Jesus was replaced by a partially eaten sausage roll. Understandably, some people got a bit upset and they soon apologised and withdrew the marketing campaign with Jesus as a sausage roll. There's a little detail I'll tell you about that some other time, but come and find me afterwards. I won't do it now. You'll start thinking about it. Generally speaking, the, the nativity, as it is, is inoffensive. It's cute. It's lovely. But should that be our sole reaction? Really. That's how it's perceived generally in the world around us as we know it. You've got the story of Jesus' birth. We've got the story of the angels coming to the shepherds and the shepherds coming to find Jesus themselves. You've got the wise men turning up sometime later with their gifts. It's a lovely story. It tells a nice story. But are we missing something vital in the mist when it stays just like that? Last week, uh, John was reminding us about some of the events leading up to Jesus' arrival with Mary and Joseph and their responses, their reactions, and what it meant as Jesus was coming incarnate in the flesh. Uh, today we're going to look at Jesus as a newborn. He's about five to six weeks old in this story. So I'm going to turn, if you haven't already, to Luke chapter 2. We're going to start from verse 22. Let's just read it through in section, this lovely story here. We'll find out what's actually at stake here, after all, that we can sometimes miss. Verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him, Jesus, to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Let's just leave it there for a second. Let's just understand quite what's happening here, setting the scene. Joseph and Mary are clearly law-abiding Jews. There's a heritage of faithfulness in this little family 
already. You also see later on in this chapter that we won't get to in verse 40, you see about when they're going up to the temple, when Jesus is 12, he says they've been doing it every year. They go up to the temple every year. They, they follow what's expected of them in terms of this is how you worship the Lord as, as one of my people. This is what you do. And they are faithful. They're a faithful couple. They're law-abiding Jews. And what they're doing here to, today in this, in this story, they're coming up to the temple to, um, up to Jerusalem for the wife's purification 40 days after birth. The woman needs to present herself as clean and holy before the Lord after this amazing event of having a baby. She, 40 days later, there's a purification, kind of a symbolic purification before the Lord. She presents herself, represents herself to the Lord as, as pure and holy, as clean before him. And simultaneously, something else they're doing that gets mentioned is that they're presenting, they're setting aside their firstborn to the Lord. It's right embedded right in the core of uh, uh, the law, we see it in Exodus chapter 13, I think it's verse 2, where God says, consecrate to me the firstborn of everything. Set apart for me the firstborn of everything. It doesn't necessarily mean you're actually just giving it back. It's a gift to you, whether it's your firstborn calf from your cow or it's your firstborn child. But God's saying, set them apart for me. In your minds and in your hearts, set them apart from me. And that's what they have to do. They have to come to the temple and present their firstborn to their Lord. This is about recognizing that we don't have an absolute claim on anything. As human beings, we like to think we do. That's mine, and I have a right to this, and I have a right to that, and that belongs to me. Actually, we don't actually have absolute claim on anything. And this is about offering God the first gifts of life that we receive in order to acknowledge his good and rightful ownership of everything. It's saying, effectively, you're the first and you're the best, He's my first and best to you. It's acknowledging who he is. It's symbolic, but it's a bold and a scary truth to acknowledge out loud. You've given me, you are the best, you've given me something amazing, I want to offer it back to you. Do as you will with this. It's quite scary when this is your child. It's quite a bold promise, isn't it? This is what they're doing. They're they're effectively saying, he's not ultimately ours, he's yours. And yes, Jesus is the Messiah, he is God, but effectively, even if he wasn't the Messiah. They'd have been doing the same. They'd saying, this, is, this child is your, he belongs to you. What do you want? What do you want from him? What do you want from us? They'd have done this with any firstborn son, let alone a divinely conceived Messiah. But that's what they're doing. They're presenting Jesus back to him. So from the very start, before we come in reading, we have very faithful parents honouring God with the best of what they've been given. And then stepping into this scene comes this guy called Simeon. Let's keep reading. From verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. And he came in the Spirit, he's being led by the Spirit, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God. And he said, Lord... Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother, Joseph and Mary, they marveled at what was said about Jesus. Here is a man, Simeon, who has been waiting it doesn't say how long for, but certainly for some time he's been waiting for a remarkable moment. He's been told by God, 
through the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the promised rescuer. It's quite a promise, isn't it? They've been waiting hundreds of years for this promised rescuer. He's been told by God, you're not going to die until you see him with your own eyes. And led by the Spirit, he's taken up, because he feels a sense, I need to go to the temple. And he goes there at the same time as Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And he recognises, there he is, this baby. This is the Messiah. We need to get a sense of this, the tingles, the, the hairs on the back of his neck going up. We need to feel this. He sees him, he goes, this is the, the anointed one. This is the one who was prophesied hundreds of years ago. This is the one that was promised. This is the great promised rescuer. And he proclaims, I can now die fulfilled. I've seen him. I've laid my eyes on him. I know that God's promise has come true. I'm laying my eyes on the very one who will save the world. Not just the Jews, but other nations too, which he specifies when he prophesies, when he says out loud. So it's a light for revelation to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and for glory to your people Israel. Can we just have the slide up just to show my headings? That's the scene. But here's the thing. So this is where things take a radical turn for the, for the surprising because it would be a lovely story until then. If we leave it there, it's really, really nice. It's a nice nativity story. We've got these devout parents honouring God boldly. We've got a baby who a prophet recognises as the promised one. It's brilliant. So we get these parents getting confirmed again for them, something that they've already been convinced about. It's getting confirmed for them again. We get a lovely scene. Oh, isn't that nice? Oh, nativity. Oh. But this is when Simeon says something further. Something which is clearly a prophecy because of what we, with hindsight, have the benefit to discover Jesus actually fulfilled later on. Let's carry on. Verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed now the imagery for what he's saying there comes from the prophet Isaiah chapter 8 Isaiah chapter 8 says this about the promised Messiah says he will become a sanctuary imagine this a sanctuary a place of safety and a stone of offence. This is Isaiah chapter 8 verse 14. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offence and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. He's saying, this Messiah isn't quite what you may necessarily expect. Ah, oh, lovely. Come to rescue us all. There's going to be an accountability involved. And different people are going to respond in different ways. And that's what Simeon is speaking out of as he prophesies over what's going to happen as a result of this baby now arriving. What's going to happen to Mary's own heart when she sees what her son goes through later on. See, the Christmas Jesus in our society has become inoffensive and sweet. Oh, baby Jesus. Five and a half pound baby Jesus. Oh. It's lovely to gaze upon, no threat in the slightest. It's too easy for baby Jesus to be seen as cute. But the fact is, that's not what he represented. That is definitely not what he fulfilled. He might well be in diapers, but he's also the divine. Mustn't lose sight of this. And Simeon is reminding us, and it's recorded for us to remember now in 2017, he's reminding us that Jesus' coming will cause a divide. Those who accept him, and those who don't. 
this division will not be because of his intent per se, divisiveness for divisiveness sake. It's not, that's not what he came for. The responsibility lies in our laps. In fact, Simeon says right at the very end, thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is coming and Jesus' very presence exposes our very hearts in our response to him. The responsibility lies in our laps here. Here is a child who divides. It's not just cute. It's a child who divides just by his mere presence. Jesus came to rescue, not to be cooed at. And he knew full well he would be rejected as much as received. So here is actually a child who divides. Let's just fast forward for a little, little while just to Jesus as an adult and see what happens. Again, it's too easy for the man Jesus of Nazareth to be perceived as lovely, kind, nice, a good teacher, lovely man. But he is divisive. He's a divisive character by his mere presence. He wasn't trying to be antagonistic for the sake of it, but because he, what he represented what he came to do, exposed people's hearts and their reactions, polarised. In, uh, in England, in 2015, two years ago, there was a survey taken up of the general public in England. 40% of the general public in England didn't know that Jesus actually existed. Think he's a myth, think he's made up. 40% of our country don't actually know that Jesus existed. 43% said they believe in the resurrection. It's quite interesting. How many of those have actually done anything about that? That's a whole other, something to explore another time. 40% of our country didn't believe Jesus existed. 43% believe in the resurrection. That's quite divisive. That's a, quite a polarised response to a survey, isn't it? There's a clear divide. But when they were asked to describe Jesus, what words do they use to describe Jesus? He's spiritual. He's loving. He's peaceful. All the nice adjectives. Not once did they mention he's powerful, he's just, he's ruling, he's in charge, he's the judge. Always focus on the nice stuff. Jesus is quite divisive just by his mere presence. Let's find out. Matthew chapter 10. This is Jesus many years later, some 30 years later. Matthew chapter 10. This is what Jesus says, which many people are very surprised by. This lovely man says this. Matthew 10 verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. What? Is that what he said? I have not, to come, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. It's a peaceful, nice man saying that. What's going on? Don't mishear this. Jesus loves family. Okay? He invented it with Father. He invented family at the dawn of creation. And he's a member of the greatest, infinite, most loving family to ever exist. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Jesus loves family. It's not here just, he's not just coming to blow it up. Don't mishear that. But the kingdom that he represents, the domain that he rules over, is one of the heart. And the values and the expectations of that kingdom go against the flow of the world around us, go against the beat of our hearts very often. That's the thing. The world, as we know it, has morphed and twisted into something it was never intended to be. 
And that's our fault. The responsibility lies in our laps. The world now, since the fall, is self-serving, sly, it's proud, lustful, deceitful, secrets hiding in the dark corners, motivations that are not God-honouring. And none of us can claim to be innocent of any of that. So it is down to us. And so at any time into that world when God's values step in, when they step into view like love and peace and reconciliation and forgiveness and sacrifice, they will always jar when our selfish hearts realise that something we cherish might have to go. It sounds great when it's on the news. We see someone forgiving. Oh, that's amazing. I could never do that. What an amazing person. Someone doing an amazing loving act or a rescuing act or the way they treat other people or helping out in times of crisis. We go, oh, that's brilliant. We commend it, don't we? we? We love it. But when it comes home to roost and we have to make a choice, we suddenly realise there's a battle inside when we're asked to do the same. It's never easy. It takes sacrifice to love another. It takes sacrifice to give up something for another. It takes sacrifice to do the right thing. It's hard sometimes. And the reason that's hard is because there's a battle. There's another part of our hearts that wants to do the opposite. And suddenly there's a confrontation at stake. There can be many things that that hold us back from doing the right thing, from honouring God. There can be many things when his values step into view that makes our hearts go, I don't know if I can do this. It may be peer pressure. It may be we affiliate so much to the tribe we love being a part of, whether that's family, whether that's a circle of friends, whether that's a community, whether it's a certain race, wherever that might be. Sometimes we have to let go of that and cherish Jesus more. And that can be really hard sometimes. It can be something neutral, but nevertheless consumes our heart's focus and draws us away from him. Entertainment. Nothing per se with the wrong, with the, wrong with the idea of entertainment. It's what within it we're soaking up and how much we cling to that instead of spending time with him, for example. It can get in the way. It can smother. Money. Money itself is neutral. The love of it is a whole other ballgame. It can have a hold on our hearts. It can get in the way of our relationship with God. Career can be a good thing. Career is a good thing. However, it can smother our ability to honour God first. And so on and so on. Or it could be our own sinful habits, places where we find comfort, places where we run to and we all know what they are for ourselves as individuals. Suddenly there's a place we find comfort that we know is wrong and we still go there. There comes a point we have to make a choice. Do I want that or do I want him? It's a challenge, isn't it? Whatever it is, the Christian life demands sacrifice and Jesus is pointing out here that that can very, very quickly include relationships. He goes on to say, Verse uh, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What Jesus is saying is that he doesn't want to divide families for the sake of it. It's not saying that at all. But if we wish to maintain peace with other broken human beings who might otherwise call us fools, if we want to keep the peace with them or because we don't want to lose their approval or we want to avoid discomfort when they're around, then we're worshipping them above him. It's true, isn't it? 
some people may view honouring your parents as the ultimate obligation. Certainly a lot of cultures, probably less so in our society now, but in other cultures still today, but particularly at the time then. That's why Jesus is raising that about father and mother and son and daughter. About honouring your parents is, can be a massive thing for many people. But maybe for us, it's about gaining, uh, gaining your, um, your friends or your colleagues' approval. could be for you the ultimate comfort, seeking their approval. And so you don't do certain things or you refrain from saying certain things when you know you should do to honour God, but you refrain for the sake of what those other people think of you. Suddenly you're worshipping them, not him. This is kingdom values, challenging, confronting what's going on in our hearts. Because honouring parents is a good thing. God tells us to. But when they're going against the grain of what it means to honour God, we have to honour him more. When we try and seek other people's approval over God's approval which we can so easily do. We're worshipping them instead of him. But in both those instances, both parties will let you down, ultimately, because they're human. They're just as broken as you are. And to assume that we can yield to other broken human beings' expectations and wishes, and to assume that we can keep on doing that and receive God's approval at the same time, all the time, as an affront to his goodness. There will come points, there will come sticking points in your life where you have to make a decision. When we place him first, we may well lose friends or loved ones. Not always, but it's a possibility. But he will never let you go. He will never let you down. He will never abandon you and he will always lead you to the place where you will grow. Every single time it's a choice we have to make you'll be fulfilled truly when you're captivated by him more than anything else so the question I want to ask about this man who confronts where does your heart lie do you value someone or something more than him do I I've got to speak to myself as well do I value something or someone more than him Jesus is asking do you receive me or do you reject me it's a big question because those are the only options we have. You can't sit on the fence with Jesus. People think you can. Oh, he's nice. Nice, good teacher. Have you actually read what he says? <laughs> you can't sit on the fence with Jesus. To ignore that question, do you reject him or receive him? To ignore that and think it doesn't matter is as much rejecting him. Desmond Tutu once explained, if you're neutral in times of injustice, you're siding with the oppressor just by mere abstinence. And in the same way, to ignore the offer of rescue while you're adrift in the ocean because you're admiring the view, hoping the offer will come back round later, is foolish, and you're rejecting the rescue. To tell Jenny, time and time again, I love you. You're giving it all the words. I love you. I love you so much. You're amazing. And yet my life doesn't back that up with how I consider her and how thoughtful I am and things I do for her and listening to her and so on. Then it just exposes my heart, reveals the truth in my heart, and it's just empty words. And in the same way, just to be slacking off when it comes to that question, do you reject or do you receive Jesus? To bury your head in the sand regarding Jesus is a willful choice. You're rejecting him because you're not receiving him. You have to decide. Do you receive him? And at the very start of that, to discover if it's true, at the very least. Or... Are you rejecting him? When it comes to Jesus, creator in human flesh, coming to save the lost, 
You cannot ignore it and hope it goes away. You either receive him or reject him. This is the same for us Christians as well. You may well have received him. You're following him. And yet along the way, we can let that drift, can't we? I'm convinced, and if you're unsure, I'll show you from Scripture, I'm utterly convinced, once saved, if saved, always saved. You can't lose your salvation. I'm convinced of that. But we can let our relationship drift when we start honouring and worshipping other things before him quite often, even as believers. Is your Christian walk comfortable? Do you always make sure your life is comfortable? Because maybe you're missing points where God's asking you to do something and you're ignoring it. Following Jesus actually isn't easy because it goes against the grain of the world we live in. Are you obedient when he asks you to do something? Are you obedient when he asks you to stop doing something else? Are you listening to that voice? Are you being obedient? And are you on mission? Are you proclaiming him? Are you seeking ways to proclaim the good news in whichever way that might look like as well? But does your love for family or career or avoiding confrontation hamper your walk with him? Something we have to ask ourselves. Because to allow our walk with him to go off course, to avoid difficulty despite his clear requests and his promises that he will be with us every step of the way is to choose something other than him. The good news is he doesn't just leave it there. He is the God who reconciles. This is the child who divides. This is the man who confronts. But this is the God who reconciles. It's in his nature. He can't help himself to be a God who always wants to seek reconciliation, redemption, to lift us up. Verse 39 is the verse I missed off the end of that passage. Jesus carries on. Whoever finds his life will lose it. You're trying to find it on this, in this life, you're going to lose eternity. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, Jesus died so we might live. You can try to keep your life as you know it. Minimising tension in relationships, keeping everyone happy, avoiding confrontation. I know we all like to do that. Seeking creature comforts is a big thing. Particularly for our society. But, while family, for example, is a valuable thing, if you value all that above Jesus, then you're in danger of losing eternal life and peace and joy. But when you receive him as rescuer, as life giver, while that may risk some relationships, may risk some worldly treasures that your heart has got a grab of, you will receive far, far, far more than you could ever imagine and could ever lose. To lose your life for Jesus means it is returned to you in a whole new way, at a whole new level for eternity. You can't outgive him. Whatever you lose, you'll gain so much more. Following him may well pitch you against the world and his cronies in different times and in different ways, but in Jesus, we're no longer enemies of God. We're his children. That's a big truth we don't always remind ourselves of. In Jesus, we may be at loggerheads with friends or family or colleagues because of who we are and what we stand for, but we get to walk hand in hand with the one who made us. When we weigh that up on the scales, it changes things dramatically. We need to recognise that. We big up the things we value in this life and make them too big because we're too close to them. We need to step back and realise how big God is over and above that. This little baby that we celebrate at Christmas is more than something to be cooed at. While in diapers, he was nevertheless the divine Lord of all things. There lay the Creator. In Simeon's hands, he's holding the Creator. Sustaining the universe. 
It's just remarkable. And that little bundle of flesh, how did it not explode? I'm sorry, but this baby was sustaining the universe. That power, how, how, I can't get my head around it. It's amazing. Simeon was holding him. In there was a, in these hands lay the creator, the king of kings, the great rescuer. But this baby was not just cute. So the difficult to hear news about this is that that baby, he came to confront our choices. He came to challenge our comfort zones. He came to divide the faith field from the faithless. He came to divide. He came to separate the devoted from the rebel. Which are you? But the good news is, he came to rescue the lost. He came to restore the broken. He came to reconcile the rebellious. All you have to do is receive him. I just want to return to Simeon's words in Luke 2. Just ask a question. That's what Simeon said. He took this baby up in his arms. He blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation. Have you seen his salvation? Do you see him for who he is? Do you accept him for who he is? Because if you don't, you're rejecting him. You can't go, oh, I'll think about that another time. In that moment, you're rejecting who he is. That's the truth of what's going on here. Do you receive him? Or do you reject him? Do you want to stand? Tell you what, so we sing a song. Let's sing Emmanuel and then I'll pray afterwards. Just with, with this in mind, let's, let's sing Emmanuel. So that's all right, Ivan. Is that okay? Have we stolen the iPad back off Casey? Sorry.